couple of months ago, I was doing some marriage counseling for a couple who's in deep trouble. They had filed for divorce and their time was about expired. But both of them claimed to be Christians and said they wanted to try to work things out. But I perceived very quickly that they had uh, a lot to learn in terms of what the Bible teaches. When one night the lady told me of some of the things her husband did and some of her reactions. Uh, one time, she got mad at him and he got out of the car to cool off and she drove away and left him in the middle of the highway. <laughs> it's funny to think about it, but it's sad to think it really happened to people. But I told her that when he, re- when he did things that made her mad, she needed to love him and be kind to him. She said, but wouldn't it be hypocritical of me to act loving if I didn't feel that way. And she, in that one sentence, revealed her the depth of her understanding of what Christian love is. It's just acting out in whatever feelings you had. We want to look at a passage tonight that tells us something more about what love is and what it should be. The type of love we should have for one another. Not just those of us who are married, but all of us within the body of Christ. As David said last week in John 15, there are three basic divisions telling us first of all about our relationship with Christ himself in verses 1 to 11 then our relationship with fellow believers in verses 12 to 17, then our relationship to the world in verses 18 to 27. So let's look first of all at our relationship with fellow believers and let's read together verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So Jesus repeats himself in verse 12 and verse 17 and says that his commandment is that they love one another. Now notice that he commands that we love one another. So love for us as Christians is not simply acting on our good feelings when they happen to be good. But it's rather something that the Lord can command of us. Because love in the biblical sense is is an act of the will, a commitment of our self to submission to his lordship. It's not simply an emotion which could come and go. And then he tells us something of the nature of that love in verses 12 and 13. First, he says, love one another just as I have loved you. Now, how did Christ love his disciples? He prayed for them. He taught them spiritual truths so they could be led into the freedom and liberty of, of God's children. He rebuked them and admonished them when they needed that. He labored for them, gave up his sleep for them when necessary. And of course, ultimately laid down his life for them, which is how he describes this love in verse 13. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. This should be the mark of our love for one another. 
we love one another by uh, in the way that Jesus loved, laying down our life for one another. Now, I'd imagine that many of us might do that at some point for a good friend, maybe for a, a spouse or one of our children. We might be willing to rush in front of an oncoming car and push that person out away from the car at the risk of our own lives. But I wonder how many of us would would be and are willing to lay down our life for somebody that we love, not just one time in some heroic uh, show of glamour, but in the everyday type of things, hour by hour, day by day, year by year. Just think with me for a couple of minutes about some of the key relationships in your life. And just think for one day how you normally react to people. Think about your friends. You lay down your life for them. Do you try to serve your friends, build them up in Christ and meet their needs? Or do you see them basically as people who are there to meet your needs? People to make you have fun. That's why you hang out with them. Or people who will listen to you whether they want to or not. Or you who are living at home with your parents, think through relationship with your parents. Do you view them as somebody who God put there to serve you, give you money, carpool, clean the house, cook, and therefore your responsibility is to take advantage of them as much as you can? Or do you see them as people who need to be loved? You voluntarily want to go and do things for your mom and dad, even if they don't ask. Do you even think in those terms? Or how about you parents to your children? Do you see your children as simply a bother and as people who get in the way of your own comfort and your plans? Or do you try to give of yourself to them daily? Give of your time and energy. Be a friend to them. Be an example. Give them the encouragement and direction their life needs. The other night I got home a little bit early from work and I had some time and uh, as you know, we've moved into a house recently, so there's still a, a, a million things that need to be done. And my mind immediately went to that. And I thought, well, gee, I'm, I could go out in the garage and put up some shelves and empty, unpack some of those boxes that are still sitting out there. And then Micah came up. He's my two-and-a-half-year-old son. He wanted me to play with him. And so I had to think, well, what's more important? To get shelves up in the garage, and the only reason I do that is to make my, my life more satisfying in the long term some way, or to play with my son if he wants to right now. And I saw that I have to think through each day with, with him. Am I trying to serve him or just see him as a bother to my own uh, goals? I think through a relationship at, uh, with a spouse, those, those of you who are married. Do you think, does your mind think in terms of how much or how little can I do to serve my spouse? How little can I get away with without getting a complaint? Or does your mind think in terms of how much can I do? What are new ways that I can think of to serve my husband or my wife? Do you try to think, how can I get her or him to serve me more? Or do you think, how can I learn to serve that person more? Or think about the terms of your relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you simply reach out to the people who are cool and who uh, you have fun with and kind of enrich your life? Would you try to reach out in service to those who may be lonely or who, who you don't have much in common with? 
Some of us, I think, uh, can identify the poem I once heard. It goes something like this. To be above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to be below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) But Jesus says here to the disciples, the measure of your love for one another is to be my love for you. And the church is to be a fellowship of love where we are willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Or we try to serve and reach out and meet needs, whatever they are. Now, that's a very difficult task. And so I think the verses that follow, verses 14 to 16, are put there to show us that Jesus wants to encourage us uh, in our attempts to fulfill what he has commanded. And as I understand these verses, he's encouraging us two ways. First of all, in verses 14 and 15, he says, I'm going to give you help in loving one another in this way, because now you are my friends. I'm calling you friends, not just slaves. And as a friend, I'm going to tell you my secrets. Because people tell secrets to their friends. They tell them everything they know. He says, you are my friends. I don't know what you're like, but I have a hard time following rules and obeying things if I don't understand why they're there. I always want to ask, well, what's the purpose of that? Why do it this way? It always infuriates my wife whenever she asks me to do something and I always want to say, well, why do you want to do it that way? But Jesus is saying here that he's going to encourage us in our uh, obligation to love one another because he's going to tell us why. Fill us in on all the reasons. It's easier to love one another if we realize, as Jesus said, he who lays down his own life is going to be enriching himself. He said, he who who seeks his own life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. And that makes it a lot easier to love in this way. If you know your own benefit is going to be served through doing it. It's a lot easier to love if you realize that this is part of God's plan for us to be a witness to the whole world through our love for one another, as he says in chapter 17. It's easier to love one another in a sacrificial way. If we understand that God is glorified, as he is able to bring together in the church a diverse group of people who naturally would not even give each other the time of day sometimes. But he can bring us together and make us into a loving body of people, a real family. The second way he encourages us in, his, in our love is in verse 16. Because he's appointed us to a task. He's commissioned us. Now most of us, like to feel needed. Really, all of us like to feel needed. Now, if somebody calls you to do a very special task, to head up a uh, an investigating commission for the government, or to serve in a public office, or to, to do some special duty, though it might take time and a lot of energy, usually we like to have that kind of thing happen to us. We like to be commissioned. And so Jesus here commissions us. This is not simply something we do but something that we are sent to with a very great purpose and high calling. So he encourages us to love because he says, this is part of our commission. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. So he's appointed us for two reasons, he said. One, to go and bear fruit and your fruit remain. In other words, that the disciples would 
leave and spread out throughout the world and now bear fruit, not just in their own personal lives, but in the lives of others. And their loving one another would be a whole part of this as they demonstrated Christ's character. And secondly, he's appointed them to be prayers, to be those who ask of the Father, and whatever you ask, in my name he may give you. And as we try to accomplish his tasks, and we find that it's very difficult to love in the way he's called us to, then we can avail ourselves of this power and pray. And however we ask of the Father, in terms of our needs to fulfill the requirements of love, he will enable us. Well, this is a relationship that we are to have to one another as believers, to be those who love one another. Now, it would be nice if our lives could consist only in, in this kind of relationship. But as it is, we exist in a world that's hostile. And so he tells the disciples in verses 18 to 27 what, how they're going to relate to the world. And these verses divide into three uh, basic parts. In 18 through the first half of 21, Jesus tells us why it is the world hates us. In the second half of 21 through verse 25, he tells us why it is that the world hates Christ. And then in verses 26 and 27, he says what our response to the world should be. So let's read first of all verses 18 through the first half of 21. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. He says the reason that they hate us as Christians is because we're identified with Christ. He says in verse 18, because they hated me first. He says in verse 19, the world hates us because we are not part of it. We are not of it. We don't have the same values, the same goals, the same priorities. We don't have the same attitudes and responses to life. And therefore, we're oddballs. We don't fit in. Now, it's important for us to know this because sometimes we might get the naive feeling and the disciples might have that because we have the message the world needs, we might have the naive feeling that they're all going to want it and that they're going to clap and applaud when we bring it to them. But so that we can be realistic, he tells us the world hates us because the world, even though it needs Christ, is in rebellion against him. He says in verse 20, uh, excuse me, in verse 19, I chose you out of the world. So we are different. We're not in the world. We're not of the world, but we're out of it. We've been separated from it. And of course, this separation is not physical. We're not physically out of it. We're not to withdraw physically. But it's morally. It's attitudinally. We are different. We no longer belong. Verse 19 in verse 19, Jesus says, you can be loved by the world if you don't like the hate that they give you. You can be loved, but it's only if you fit. Because the word he uses for love here is different from the word he uses in verses 12 and 17. In 12 and 17, he uses the word agape, God's kind of love. 
the love which you have, which you, which you give to the other person in spite of what that person may be. But the world loves with the phileo love. The love that you get because of who you are, if you meet certain requirements. So part of what he's saying by implication is that if you don't want to be hated by the world, you can be loved by them, but only by fitting in. And we can see from these two sections that our option is being loved by the world only when we fit in, meet certain conditions, or experiencing love within the church unconditionally. And so we're encouraged to, to maintain, to stay in Him, because within the church we should be able to experience a type of love which is different from the world's. We should experience and also give it. Not just loving because people fit our ideas or they're likable to us, but loving because God has placed His love within our hearts. And therefore we love others in spite of what they may be. He says that the world will hate us because it hates Him. But then our next question is logically, well, why does the world hate Christ? And he tells us in the second half of 21 through verse 25. They hate me because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But, the, but they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So Jesus says in verse 21 that they hated him because of ignorance, because they didn't know the one who sent me. But then he clarifies for us in the next verses and he says, but that ignorance was not an excusable type. It was a deliberate, willful ignorance on their part. He says, I came to them and I showed them the signs. I manifested my character to them. But still they did not believe. He says, they would not have had this sin if I had not done these things. As he's not saying they would not be sinners because they would have been guilty. But they wouldn't have been guilty in the same way. They wouldn't have been guilty in the sense that uh, that he had come and openly and clearly demonstrated all he was to them, and yet they rejected him. Now, this is essential for us to understand that the world is like this. Because very often, we meet people who are very sincere and who appear objective to us. And if we're not careful, we can be greatly bothered and our faith tried by these types of people particularly somebody who's a student, and their teacher or professor appears to be a man who's very sincere and dedicated to life and goodness and very objective. And yet that person says, well, I don't believe this stuff. The evidence is lacking. I had a friend in college who told me one time. He said, Steve, I have sincerely investigated all the evidence there is for the existence of God. And I've just frankly found it to be lacking. It's just not there. I want to be convinced. I want to believe. But there's just not enough evidence. He said, and of course, if there is a God, he cannot hold me guilty for not believing in him because I've tried and I've looked at the evidence. The way he said it, he sounded very sincere. And if I didn't know passages like this, I might wonder, 
Well, God, how can you be true? And here's a person who sincerely wants to know you and yet he can't find evidence. But Jesus says, though the world is ignorant, they're ignorant because they want to be. Because they don't want to submit to who I am and what that will mean for their lives. With such a warm response from the world, our uh, temptation would probably be to withdraw. If they don't want Christ, if they don't want truth, then I don't want to bother myself to go and talk to them. And yet that's the opposite response that God has called us to. Because we see in verses 26 and 27 the response we should have to the world. When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. In a ministry we do together with the Holy Spirit, we are to be witnesses of Christ to the world. Now, God could have arranged it otherwise. Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and the Pharisees said, don't let the children shout out Hosanna, son of David. He said, if they didn't shout out, then God would raise the very rocks up for witnesses. God doesn't need us as his witnesses in a sense. He could tell people about himself without us. But God has designed life such that we are his witnesses for very definite purposes. Which would you rather be in an office? Would you be rather be somebody whose responsibility is to sharpen all the pencils all day and empty the waste paper baskets? Or would you rather be a boss or an executive secretary or a plant manager? I think we can all identify with that. We wouldn't want to simply sharpen pencils all day and empty the trash can. We would want a little bit of responsibility. And God has set up His work in this world for our good that we can have the dignity and the fulfillment of being responsible parties. He's given us the responsibility to be His witnesses in the world. And being a witness does something else for us as well. It purifies us. Somebody told me the other day that she was thinking about talking to her neighbors about Christ and then it made her wonder, well, gee, if I'm going to say all these things, do I really believe it? Am I willing to lay my life on the line and, and risk being uh, looking foolish? Witnessing, reaching out to a hostile world purifies us. It makes us take account of our own spiritual life. It makes us see, are we really serious with this? Can we really tell somebody that we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord if our lives don't match up, if we're just playing games? So being witness in the world also purifies us. So God has called us to, to this. Well, this is our relationship as it should be to the world. The world hates us, but we're not to withdraw. We're to be witnesses and give God, uh, give God's truth to all those who are around. And it glorifies God even if the world doesn't respond. Well, we're going to close in a, with a hymn tonight. Uh, hymn number 183 that speaks about this same issue. Faith of our fathers. And look at the words as you sing. The man who penned this song uh, did so with the recognition that people before him 
had been willing to face the hostility of the world, been willing to even lay their lives in the line. And it's because of those who have been faithful to God throughout history that we're able to stand and be able to know the truth.